and what's up, world? I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. Now, I think we're going to have a really unique and interesting conversation today, and I'm super excited to be here with our guest, Ayman Ismail an Egyptian-American journalist, host, and producer. Ayman just released his first episodes of his podcast, Man Up, which is all about manhood and masculinity, and pretty much began when Ayman started asking himself, how do I become a better man? Before that, he was working on the hit Slate web series, Who's Afraid of Ayman Ismail, an award-winning show that covered everything from homophobia, hijab, extremism, Christmas, and marriage. I just love hearing it sound like, yeah, he worked on stories that involved homophobia and Christmas. <laughs> well, they're extremes. In the Muslim community, if you are talking about either of those things, you are an extremist. It's like the other spectrum. It's like the spectrum on the other side of ISIS. It's you like have. if we were on Stranger right. Things, that would be the upside down. <laughs> it's like the reverse extremism is talking about homophobia and Christmas. Yeah, it, it worked out. It was fine. My mom still has really hard time talking to me about it. No way. She's so mad that the series exists. She's like, hey man, it's mad kalam. Just like, make something that's nice for once, you know? That's I feel so like uh, I've, I've always seen comedians talk about their parents and like how they don't like dick jokes or whatever. And this is my version of that. This is the journalist version. You're talking about homophobia and Christmas <laughs> in, in Islam. And they're just like, hey man, why don't you just do one about like a Muslim who gets good grades? Oh <laughs> like, my God. That is so typical. I watched the entire show Rami with my mom. Oh God. And I was like, did you like it? She was like, I liked it, but it's not good. <laughs> and I was, I was like, what Yo. do you mean it's not good? And she's like, everything is bad. Oh, he's, just, he's bad and he doesn't know if he should be good. And I'm like, mom, look at every kid mm -hmm. that is Muslim American growing up in, in America. And that's literally the struggle. Like, it is the yeah, truth. And yeah. she was like, it's bad. They should focus it's on good. <laughs> it's so good. It's funny, dude, because I, I went to like one of those screenings for the show and Romy was there and there was like a Q&A. And the only question that I asked him was like, yo, how did your mom feel about this? And he goes, oh, well, uh, yeah, I was texting her and she texted me back saying, hey, uh, I'm proud of you. This is really good. Does it need that much sex? <laughs> Oh, man, that is such an Arab mom thing, I believe. Oh, man. Speaking of moms, I want to talk about your childhood and adolescence. You grew up in New Jersey. Yep. Shout out Newark. Shout out Newark. I've not really spent much time there. Tell me about growing up. So Newark is like the queens of New Jersey. There's everybody and we're all in the same place. There's no such thing as normal. I mean, I rarely ever hear English being spoken in my neighborhood, which is kind of annoying but amazing at the same time i really feel like i'm not an, even in america because nowadays america is like a particular thing and if you don't look and sound like it you're not american but in this neighborhood you'd be pressed to find anyone who fits that type you know what i mean right uh you can't see my air quotes but like fits that type anyways it was amazing so i grew up i mean first i went to an islamic school in jersey city the only thing that mattered to my parents when i was growing up was we had to make sure he becomes a good Muslim. And that was like the priority. So they spent money they didn't have because they loved us that much to send us to a school 
where we took like Quran classes, Islamic classes. We did Taekwondo, but it was Islamic Taekwondo. What's what's Islamic Taekwondo like? It's the same thing, but like not rooted in any kind of <laughs> discipline. <laughs> we just kind of swing our arms in the air and say, hi And then we get our like yellow belt afterwards. It was so amazing. And was it was the school nice? Like, was it nice yeah. facilities? Uh, no. <laughs> facilities was crap. I mean, it was just Jersey City in the 90s, you know? So uh, it was across the street from the projects. There was another school that was right behind it that we shared a fence with that was notorious for like... I think they killed a teacher one year where they threw somebody outside of a window. Like, really, really crazy. It's Lincoln High School. You talk about it now in Jersey City. They're like, oh, you must be a gladiator. Wow. Like it's, it was that kind of school. So we were always fighting those kids <laughs> because we're kids and we're always going to be just like confrontational. So we had lunch at the same time. We're just on the other side of this fence. We'd just be cursing at each other, laughing at each other, trying to like mess with each other. And then there was a crown fried chicken which is one block away, which was the meeting point. So if we got there around the same time that they got there, it would just be, a brawl. you know, antics. Oh, right? and shenanigans. Shenanigans. Tickle fights. <laughs> My parents tried to send me to an Islamic school. Oh, man. And you it missed was, out, man. It, it was... Oh, fun. no. It, it, they, they sent me for... I think we went maybe... Well, we were. it was only a Sunday school. Mm -hmm. or, or I think it was Psalm Sundays. And... I remember I came home and I protested and I was like, I'm not going ever you again. protested? I was like, I'm never, I'm never You're going back. You're such an Egyptian, man. Yeah, I, pro <laughs> I protested and I won. I actually won and I never had to go back. So, you know, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate. Islamic school spring. <laughs> yeah, it was like the Islamic school spring. But it's like, as an adult, now I actually get jealous of people who went to Sunday school mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form because my kind of like vocabulary of my religion is yeah. extremely limited and I even sometimes find myself being manipulated and kind of guided by what I see on television. By the stereotypes? Yeah, sometimes I'm just like... That's, but, yeah, that's everybody, man. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I protested too. <laughs> it just didn't work. <laughs> so your uh, mom and dad were pretty cool? They were like very religious, right? Both and, of them were. Yeah. So my dad was from Isaid, which for Egyptians, that means like upper Egypt, like a farmer style type thing. He fit into Newark perfect, is what I'm going to say. Uh, and my mom was a very empathetic, caring person who was so concerned with making everyone around them the most comfortable person in the world. So them together created this imaginary bubble where like I felt like I was living in Egypt and like we only spoke Arabic in the house. And if we, I talked to them in English, they would respond in Arabic. It really mattered to them. They were so afraid of raising American kids. Like they didn't want American, just unhyphenated kids. They wanted kids to be, to have like a good moral compass, to remember where they came from or like where their parents came from and to try and maintain that heritage because they just saw it as better than American culture. You know, they see sex, they see drinking, they see all these problems and they think to themselves, oh, those aren't Muslim problems because they didn't see it in Egypt. Right. Because and they left in the 60s when it was nice. Do you think that they were overly protective because you were actually born in the States? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fact. And I have to empathize. I mean, the world that we're in right now, especially in New York and New Jersey, isn't the same that they landed in when they came from Egypt. So you have to imagine these people who came from a totally different world and landed in the epicenter of the crack epidemic, right? 
And New York City was not friendly, but my dad was living in Queens as a taxi cab driver, basically picking up the salt of the earth and driving them wherever they were to be salty somewhere, right? Uh, and my mom was doing something similar in New Jersey where she was uh, babysitting for kids and she would go out to the parks and she sees fights and everything. So for them, leaving Egypt, this magical wonderland, the way that they describe it, where, you know, everyone was a nanny and everyone was feeding you and everybody was doing all this stuff to take care of you and protect you. And they came to a place where it was the opposite of that. It almost felt like everyone was out there to get you. So I understand with that lens why it was so important for them to put me in a school where they thought that I would be safe and I'd be learning the religion and the religion would also be keeping me safe. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I appreciate that. As a kid, obviously, I wasn't going to see it that complicated. To me, I was like, Mom, you don't get me. Give me back my headphones. I want to listen to rock music and play Pokemon. Like, whatever. And that was my thing. Until I got older, then I was re-examining my relationship to the Islam, just being happy that I could read Arabic and being so thankful for that. And uh, I feel like I don't appreciate them enough for that. It's funny. I think you know, shouts out to our moms. Right? <laughs> Shout definitely shouts out to our moms. Always shouts out to yeah. our moms. I found one thing that you said, or a bunch of what you said was interesting. But one thing struck me as a total opposite of my experience. What the problem is, your Arabic is better than mine. How is that possible? Because when I came here, I only exclusively spoke Arabic. Arabic mm. was my first language. I went to school. I understood nothing. I tried to make friends. It was impossible because I was more oh, or less a mute. So then my parents enforced a different rule, which was only English in the house. What? Yes. And so I literally only spoke English. And then after a while, I'm finding myself consuming content like music and mm. television and films. And then English became easier than Arabic. And then I just stopped. And then I just never went back to it. And so now I go, I go to Egypt and I can get by and I can understand. Like the, the nice thing is they never stopped talking to me in Arabic. Yes, right? you have the vocabulary. So I have the vocabulary. I can understand mm -hmm. what everyone's saying. But when I talk, I sound like a third grader with a bunch of like crackers in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> like I definitely have a third grade speaking level and a kindergarten reading level. Like it will take me <laughs> probably 15 minutes to read your name mm -hmm. in Arabic. But I can do it. Yeah. Which is a nice thing. So if you're like third grade with crackers in their mouth, I'm like fifth grade with like juice spilling out of it, you but, know? But I think you have that, the, uh, like the, mm, you know, like how Latinos have like a real, like mm. a real, like they like twist the voice a little bit to make it sound Latino. They have the and tongue. Ar yeah, the tongue. And, yeah. and and Arabs do the same thing. So when you're, you have to get that to really speak Arabic or yeah. else you're just speaking like English in Arabic. I also grew up in a very like Latino community. So maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, the thing with Newark particularly is that when we were like taken out of the private school and thrown to the wolves, it was really easy to transition because everyone had their language that they spoke at home. Everyone had their parents that were trying to instill with them these values to protect them from whatever they were going to experience out in the world. So it almost felt like, I don't know, this is like such a cliche, like the melting pot. This melting pot was like boiled over. Like this was crazy. Everybody was from somewhere. Which made for a really dynamic relationship to my own heritage, right? I didn't think to myself as being different and wanting to conform only because nobody was similar. Everybody was different and not trying to conform. So it was the perfect environment to both explore 
who I wanted to be and at the same time who my parents were raising me to be. Yeah, that's really nice. And so when did like, when do you think that the, let's call it identity crisis of I am American, yeah. I am Egyptian, I am both. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one is in front of the other. I could honestly refer to myself as American Egyptian. Yeah, I could do that hyphen. I could go the other way. Yeah, right now I'm Egyptian American, but I could go American Egyptian. For you, like, when did it become clear? Because it sounds like elementary school and middle school. I don't know much about your high school yet, but it sounds like a lot of it was positive. There were a lot of different people. When did it become apparent that mm-hmm. there was a choice and that there was a conversation and that there was an identity crisis? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this happened to me so late in life, and. I wonder if that worked to my advantage or didn't, but it really didn't happen for me until I moved to New York, believe it or not. I moved to Brooklyn after I graduated college. And college was another place that was easy because you you kind of like make your friends. And again, it was New Jersey, so everyone was from somewhere. Once I started working in New York City, you didn't re- you don't get to choose your coworkers in the same sense that you get to choose your friends. So I was forced to interact with people who I just didn't understand. We didn't have like that cultural understanding and respect for each other where I was being questioned why I didn't drink at like our first work party. And at this, up until this point, I haven't had a single sip of alcohol. Nobody ever pressured me to because everyone had their cultural baggage. So I was like, oh no, that's not something that Muslims do or Arabs do or whatever. And they'd be like, okay, cool. Well, I'm Puerto Rican. We don't do this X, Y, Z, right? Uh, So it was fine. But walked into this space and I was around white people. Well, just culturally American white people who had never seen or interacted with people so different from them. And to them, it was like a game. They were like, okay, how different is this person? What do I need to say to trick them? Oh, what if I just tell them, oh, it's, it's not really alcohol. Just take a sip. It's fine. There's all these like mind games. All of a sudden, that respect for someone being different withered away. And I really felt like, oh, man, am I going to be able to get ahead of this company if I don't drink? It almost felt like people were, were seeing me as handicapped. They were like, oh, man, that sucks. You can't drink. Oh, poor baby. Right. You became at that point, you became weird. I became, became weird. You became an outsider. Because, I mean, in New York City especially, it's, like, really weird to not drink. Yeah. And once you have a bunch of people, I'm going to call it bullying. Yeah. That's, like, kind of bullying, and it's a kind of microaggression mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like it will make an impact on a person's self-esteem. But it truly does. Because it's, like, putting their difference under a magnifying glass. And it's something that you had already kind of accepted as normal or at yeah. least not something to think about. And they were coming at it with this, like, let's examine this creature. Yeah, exactly. I felt like I was their social experiment at that point. And it made me really uncomfortable. And it made me really think to myself what I was doing wrong. I felt sheltered. And I feel like I shouldn't have felt that way. But really, I was thinking back and I was examining what I could do to compensate for not drinking so that they don't see me as an outsider or weird. And it sucked. I mean, that was the first time where I really had to sit down and think to myself, okay, well, they don't see you as American. Oh, you might see yourself as different because you like a particular kind of music. You like a particular kind of movie that makes you different, that makes you special. But to them, it's just the fact that 
culturally, I have a different experience. That made me different. And at that point, I became hyper-conscious of the split, right? There is an American culture and a hyphenated culture. And it's those two, when they meet, eventually clash. So I had to develop a language very late in life to talk to those kinds of people in, in a way that doesn't put myself out there as a victim. It doesn't make me feel like I have to teach them anything. But I had to find a way to brush it off while maybe making a joke about them, you know, flipping it so that there's like the same kind of power dynamic. Because if you're sitting down, you're letting them examine them. There's no way to feel smaller, I think. So I, I had to use <laughs> my sense of humor to make make myself feel the same size, I think, which, which ended up um, helping me in the future, I think, because that was the beginning. Yeah. And then it really, really began to emphasize itself, especially when I got arrested and the judge straight up just looked at my face and decided, okay, well, if you get arrested again on this charge, we're going to deport you. What? And I was like born like two miles from the courthouse and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is just like that drinking experience where they look at me and they see something different and they just assume it's not American. It's not local. It must be foreign because I don't recognize it. That's an unbelievable insult to yeah. say to someone. And up until this point, I just thought being different made you American, right? I, we heard the whole melting pot myth and we heard about, you know, the diversity is our strength. That honestly made us proud to be American because we thought, oh, well, we're all different. If I were going to be hanging out with my Ecuadorian friends in Ecuador, it made total sense for me to feel different because Ecuador isn't advertising itself as being a safe haven for everybody. America is. So when we were all in America working on this experiment together, I almost felt like, okay, this, this is cool. I'm happy to be here. America's dope. Where everybody's weird and different at the same time and that makes us normal. But no, it's like, I think that was just unique to New Jersey. Right, And right. once I left New Jersey, I was like, this is... And it's also that specific time, yeah. right? So like we obviously glossed over the big change mm -hmm. at least that I felt even being someone in the Midwest we're, which we're was, great we're great again which was which was 9/11 mm -hmm. that was the big big change at least for me because mm -hmm. I was pretty sheltered in growing up in the Midwest right so like I didn't have the melting pot but the nice thing about my non-melting pot is I was just accepted like Minneapolis St. Paul is super liberal mm. really nice that's like dope. Minnesota nice like this genuine community yeah. cares for their neighbors like Diversity is super important there. It was fine. And then 9-11 happened and it really changed everything for us because all of a sudden, you know, my dad felt it very important to show his patriotism. And, yeah. and my dad had been here since 1969. So for him, he was like an American, you know, 1969. Yeah. My mom came, I think, in, in like 1970 or something. So like wow. they, they'd, been here, they'd been here for a long time. Yeah. And... After that, all of a sudden, I remember them watching the news and there was a lot of like, it was tense. It was really tense in our house. And I didn't totally understand why until I went to school and then some kid just lobbed out the insult like, hey, what's up, terrorists? And I'm like, I literally don't understand what you're even talking. Like, I didn't even understand. You didn't even associate yourself no. with that event I was until like, that they, point. What are they talking about? Wow. What are they talking about? And then I had yeah. to like really dive in and be like, holy shit, like these people they're calling them Muslims mm -hmm. on the news. Like that's what my mom calls us. And it's just like this weird moment where I felt like it became for me 
I remember being in elementary school and that's why I would like fast for Ramadan and I loved it. Yeah. And people would be like, why aren't you eating? And I'm like, I'm Muslim. I don't eat during Ramadan. Here's what it is. And I felt like a true ambassador, but not in the way that I was trying to impress people, but I was yeah. just like super honest. And then after 9-11, I was like, why aren't you eating? And I'm like, oh, I'm just not hungry. Oh, shit. Or, or like, what did you get for Christmas? And I'm like, oh, I got X and Y and Z, even though it's like, you know, we didn't say any, yeah. we didn't have Christmas, but I would just pretend. Yeah. And it was a lot of, I wouldn't even call it chameleon, but it was like cowering. It was like hiding in the shadows. Right. What, what were you afraid of? I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be the, the odd duck. Yeah, because you're the only one, right? The only one. I had a ton of specifically Mexican people in mm -hmm. my school, a ton of Hmong, a ton of African-Americans. Like my school was really, really diverse, but there were no Arabs and there were no Muslims. Mm -hmm. And me, my brother, my sister were the only ones. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. Tons of For pressure. like kids, yeah. you know? Yeah. To feel and like was, they have to like bear that responsibility or it, feel it, like you're part of that in-group. And it wasn't until college that I, I remember like my parents would take me to these like Egyptian American society. That's what it was called. The Egyptian American Society of Minnesota. Dope, right? <laughs> Shout out. Shout out to, <laughs> to EASMN. I would go there and I'd be like, you people are all losers, right? Like I'd be like, yeah, I don't relate to these people. Like all these kids are nerds. Like these people are losers. Fresh off the boat. Like not even like some fresh off the boat, but mostly just like people who stuck to the heritage and, and just remained Egyptian. And I was like, I'm not one of you. Wow. And then I got to college and I started meeting me's, right? Like yeah. People who were like, <laughs> who were like, we'll just do whatever we want. And like, some of it will be Egyptian. Some of it will be American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, we're just normal college kids. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that's, that's cool. when it started. Yeah. That, and anyways, I kind of went on this huge rant, but I was going to say that these experiences that you've had, mm -hmm. obviously, have impacted and guided your vision and your thesis as a journalist. Definitely. Right? Definitely, like definitely. it sounds like you have a real beat. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's such an interesting beat because I don't think anyone else is doing it. Yeah. I mean, I like to think that everyone, everything that everyone goes through informs who they become, right? Only like trauma, pure joy, everything that you kind of experience kind of comes together and, and culminates into like this big thing. And I was always looking for that, when, especially when I got into art. I really wanted to, at, this, at some point, wanted to just become like a colorist. I liked coloring and I wanted to work on films and add color and, and make it look funky and, and make it look tight. Was this before college or after college or in? This was in college. Okay. And uh, you went to Rutgers? I went to Rutgers. I like really was obsessed with film. I got there. There's this thing called the, the RU screw. Rutgers people will know what that means. It means that Rutgers will find a way to screw over your whole life at some point before you leave. And my RU screw happened the first day. Like I show up. Great. It was horrible. That's great to get it out of the way. <laughs> oh my God. Just wait. Listen, listen to what they did to me, man. I show up after doing orientation for the film program. I sent in my portfolio of videos to get into the film program at the art school, meet the film teachers, see the film facility, show up day one. They go, and I shit you not, what film program? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, we, we got rid of that. All those teachers that you met, we fired them. They don't work here anymore. Oh, all those cameras that you saw, we sold them. And I show up to day one with my freaking MacBook Pro that I saved up for all summer to buy. Because it was on the freaking list of stuff that you had to buy for school. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what now? Oh, 
No film program. <laughs> and you had the idea. Tuition was paid. <laughs> and you knew what you wanted to do, which is the most important thing oh, is that man. most people show up at college being like, I'll figure it out. And it sounds like you were like, I want to be in the film program. I want to make films so bad. And so what happened next? So they're like, look, you, you have two options. This is the art school of the university. So we can't enroll you in the other school so you can just try math or try something else. So what you could do is you could stay and change your focus to another art medium or you can wait a year and then come in next fall. Or I think maybe the spring was fine too, but it was going to be like a while. So I was like, hmm, I really don't want to go back home because I didn't tell my mom that I was going to art school. I told her I was going to just college. <laughs> So I didn't want her to know that I was going to art school. And wait, she didn't ask you. She was just like happy that you were going. I mean, she just assumes that when I talk in Arabic, my Arabic is, I think she just fills in the blanks. So it's like, I'm going to school, mom. And she's like, all right, (laughs) have fun. That's not how she sounds. I'm just like, that's her voice in my head. That's how she might might sound on a cartoon. Yeah. Like, which would be an interesting Who's Afraid of Iron Man and Ismail yeah. in an animated form. I would have made that film if I went to this program, maybe. Who knows? Not shout out Rutgers. Then. Ugh, Rutgers. Can you do a not shout out? I mean, technically I'm shouting them out. Shout out to all the people who hate Rutgers. Is that <laughs> So wait, t- now seriously. Like, shout that's out to a, everyone but Rutgers. It sounds like a f- very stressful situation. Yeah. So what you obviously chose to go to the art school. So I went to the art school, focused on color graduated wanting to be a colorist then found this like booming market for just video journalism this is like was just starting up they were putting really high power video sensors and photo cameras so now we have like dslrs that shoot beautiful video so news people were like wow this is cheap small runs on battery let's do it let's just make video programs so i started working First at an advertising agency that was going to help me get to film, but then that turned into a job in journalism. And I remember there was a very distinct moment where everything that I had learned from my personal experience all culminated when I was talking to the, one of the editors who was like a white girl about 9-11. And we were talking about how the community kind of disappeared. We didn't really stick together. After the attacks, everybody just took their kids out of the school because it wasn't, it wasn't like safe anymore. We, we didn't want to like put a target on our heads by just making it easy for whoever wants to come in with a gun, right? That was something that we had to worry about. That's when I went to public school in Newark. And that's where I met all those kids, but whatever. What I'm trying to say is explaining that to her, to someone who had never, who had never even thought about what the implications of 9-11 were for people who lived here, Watching her tear up and watching her emotionally react told me, oh, this is a story worth telling. And it told me that there was an audience that needs to hear it because she had never associated Islam with America in that way before. Not because she's, you know, nothing against her. It's just you don't see those stories in media at that point. So that's when I decided, you know what? I had just started working at this media company. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to write that story. And um, they were just rebuilding the World Trade Center, the new one, the One Tower. 
and I was wanted to like make a swatch as a photographer. I was there to take pictures. So I said, okay, what what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be taking pictures from all of the the other landmarks around it, and just basically write about what that felt like for me, right? So nobody like freaked out. No cop pointed a gun at me. He's like, hey, Muslim, get over here, future terrorist. Like that didn't happen. But I felt like it could, which isn't rational. But my mind rationalized it. Like I felt conscious of how I looked and my skin tone and my name. Again, nobody gave a shit. This is New York City. The person who drove me there like looks like me too. But there was something in me telling me to be cautious about taking pictures of the new World Trade Center being built from the Empire State Building secured zone area. Right? And I had like a big telephoto lens and I'm sitting there pointing it. And there's a security guard behind me who's there to make sure that I'm safe and make sure that everybody else is safe. But my mind is telling me, oh, should I like open my shoulders out a little bit so that he sees I'm holding a camera and not a gun? You know, something was telling me to do that. Do you find yourself sometimes doing that still? Oh, hell yeah. For me, maybe not for no reason, but sometimes it feels like after the fact, like it was for no reason. Like, I want to feel normal. I see myself as normal. But then I'm also the person telling myself to do that too. So I don't know if it means that I want to be normal in my heart and also in my mind. But also that maybe I'm just conscious of the fact that people aren't going to see me as normal off the bat. So I need to act in a certain way to help them perceive me that way. Yeah. I was talking to this Sikh professor on the podcast that I've, that I've been producing and he'd said something interesting. He was like, when he's flying, he'll hold his baby instead of pushing her in a carriage because there's something less threatening about a, a grown man holding a baby, right? He's a father now, not like a guy wearing a turban. He's sick. So yeah, I was like, wow, that's, I do that too. But until like, I didn't know that I did that until I heard him say that he did too, you know? It's, it's all about disarming the people before they even come up with an idea that you might have any sort of aggression or anger yeah. or hatred. Yeah. Um, I had a, a really interesting story where I was on an airplane. Oh man, on an airplane. And I <laughs> was seated next to someone who I saw literally like reach over to the snack lady, like the flight attendant yeah, was yeah, pushing yeah. the snack thing. And this person who was a person, just an American looking person, woman, and she just reached in and grabbed some pretzels and peanuts for herself. And in my mind, I was just what? like, I would never. <laughs> even. Wait, she just reached for the... Yeah, she just grabbed a peanut. I mean, it was so innocent. In her mind, it was the most innocent thing you could possibly do. Yeah. Which was, it's like not, an A, it's not stealing. B, the peanuts are there for us to have. Yeah. C, the lady pushing the cart is like going to be fine with it. Yeah. But in my mind, I was just like, I know that probably nothing would happen. Maybe I would be reprimanded. I feel like in my case, if the lady caught me, she would be like, hey, sir, please like keep your hand out of the cart and yeah. like, come around. But in my mind, it was more like I would just never even consider breaking a rule like that. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not the law. It's, like, it's just a rule. Why do you want to attract that kind of attention? Just don't even want to do it. And it's not because I want to be like... A uh, role model. It's because <laughs> I, I don't, don't want to get in trouble. Kids, I don't, don't reach in into the carts and grab snacks. 
But it, so it sounds like for you, this point of view, this perspective, this journalistic mission came super organically from yeah. that one conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it led you to, uh, in my opinion, one of the most amazing kind of early oh. careers in doing number one different formats. Right? You've got mm -hmm. video, you've got audio, you've got text, you've got photo. You kind of have every format of journalism down, oh. which I think is amazing. And and to see, I never thought of that. No, it's true. You, it's like it's you're like an egot. It's like the Emmys, the the Golden Globes, <laughs> the um, Oscars, and the Tonys. You're like egot. You could egot in journalism. Cause you're doing all of them, right? You're doing all four. Is there a word for that? Let me Google that. <laughs> if, if there's no word for every form of journalism, <laughs> and then to see that it's you, someone named Ivan Ismail, I moved to New York, and I'm like, oh, this is dope. Like this guy is like doing really cool shit, and. When you released Who's Afraid of Ivan Ismail, I, number one, loved the fucking title. I thought it was like so, I thought it was so punk rock. You know what I mean? It's like so punk. Yeah. And I think my favorite episode was, this is what the title was. Everyone thinks Muslims shouldn't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> I'm doing it anyway. Yep. Because <laughs> it's not just Muslims don't want Muslims to celebrate Christmas. It's non-Muslims who also don't want Muslims to celebrate Christmas. And for people who didn't watch the episode, what is, like, tell me why. All right, so it starts out with my wife and I, who had just gotten married at this point, in a Christmas tree lot. And this is something that if you're an American, you experience no matter what. Everybody's been to a Christmas tree lot. But up until that point, I would never once consider just picking up a Christmas tree. Like, that to me felt like, oh my God, if my mom were to come over and see this Christmas tree, she would feel like she failed as a mom. Like, that was such a... It was so consequential to me as a Muslim kid to celebrate Christmas. That's just the way that I saw it. So I wanted to confront that, but also someone had like this turkey company in England just put out like a commercial for Christmas turkeys. And in the commercial was like a Muslim woman pulling a turkey out of the oven with a hijab and having Muslims over and people getting pissed. And I was like, what are you mad about? I thought you guys wanted us to assimilate. I thought it's, this was the point. It's not like it's a damn Christmas ham. <laughs> you know, it's a turkey. We it's can, a turkey. We can eat turkey. <laughs> we make turkeys better. Not apologizing for that. Yo, wait. When I was in Egypt, <laughs> my grandmother, she was like, what do you want to eat? I was like, I want mahshi. I want hamam. Oh. I want kushari the hits. for this feast. My grandmother makes turkey <laughs> like i don't know if she did it as like a, he's american he wants turkey or yeah. like and then i was telling my mom i was like what's with the turkey and she's like for egypt it's special occasions because yeah. no one ever eats turkey yeah. and i'm like well i'm not here for a special occasion i'm here to like take in the culture yeah and i'm eating turkey to be I'm, normal this my, is more supposed yeah. to be normal right and i'm eating turkey on my first meal i was so slighted until wow. my mom explained to me that it's like a special occasion thing wow um, but sorry, but I hope to, you got mashy on that trip. Though. I did. I, I had it every other day other than that. <laughs> um, so, uh, so in the show, you and your wife standing in the lot, uh, yeah. being like, oh, people don't think Muslims should celebrate Christmas. Fuck you. I will. Yeah. And that's what happened. So, so tell me what you learned and like how it was. Uh, so the first half of the, the episode is me and my wife talking about like how, the, how this is such like an implicated subject to talk about wanting to celebrate Christmas. How it's so hard for us to do that. But then the second half, I just invited all of my Muslim friends from the area over and didn't tell them what was happening. I just told them, hey, we're shooting this thing. I kind of think you'd be cool on it. Just come through. We're going to feed you. You know, it's like the equivalent of bringing the pizza box, right? And they show up and nobody reacted. And I, that kind of pissed me off. I was like, wait, 
tree, look, tree, look, tree. And they're like, what, man? Oh, Christmas tree. Yeah, my sister does that. Oh, Christmas tree. I have one. Oh, I, I didn't get one yet, but I want one. And there was only one kid who was like, you know what, man? Fuck Christmas. And I was like, yo, go for it. It was like my entire life, from my perspective, people have been telling me not to celebrate Christmas because you're Muslim, so you can't. So he's like, oh, well, fuck you. I don't even want to celebrate Christmas. Presents, who wants those, right? Like that was his... Salty. Right. That was this is how he reacted, which is totally valid, right? Uh, so I wanted to not just say, hey, it's okay for Muslims to celebrate Christmas or say, hey, you shouldn't because you're Muslim. It was just to show how differently different Muslims feel about it, right? Because that's really what I try to get to in every episode. It's the fact that Muslims don't agree on anything, <laughs> anything. And once you get like a Muslim to say, hey, what do Muslims believe in? There's no way to answer it. So I figured, why not just get a bunch of Muslim people who all look differently from different experiences to just be like, I disagree with you, Eamon. Your Christmas tree, uh, I don't know if you should have that. And then other people being like, oh, this is your first Christmas tree. That's kind of sad, right? The, the, both of those things exist in the Muslim American experience, whether we'd like to acknowledge that or not. I've gotten Christmas trees before. Yeah. And I feel like I've already turned into the lazy American that's like, oh, Christmas, like time to get a tree. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not getting a tree this year. It's just too much work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I'm already, I've like already peaked. I've Christmas peak. <laughs> so now I'm more into just like going to department stores, listening to the music. But like, I'm kind of just like, wow. I don't want to like get the tree, there, get the that. lights. You got to take the lights down. Like I'm like a yep. dad. Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm like an American dad that's done this for 30 years. I'm Kidding, you're so young, man. I mean, I don't know. Young is kind of a thing that is just a number or whatever they say. <laughs> we got to do like Pilates or something. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been doing yoga, but I, every time I do yoga, I hurt my back. Oh my and god! And I lift weights, and I hurt my knee. And then I take a, <laughs> I take a run, I hurt my like it's like I'm, my I'm, my body's literally falling apart. Oh my um, god! Um, and <laughs> oh my god! One one of the, my favorite quotes from yours, and I think this again guides your philosophy. And I don't remember why I picked this up, but it's like, and frankly. I kind of just don't care. I want to make something that I think is honest. And the only way to do that really is to just piss off everybody. I yep. think that that's, it's unique. I don't think most people are going out there with that definition of like, that's what honesty is. It just means that like everyone's going to be mad. Yeah. I mean, seriously, you, I, there's no such thing as anybody agreeing on everything. Like it just doesn't exist. And I think I just put extra pressure on myself to have, my mom agree with like what I'm doing. And for me, my my largest artery of the Islamic experience came to me from my mom. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that like translated over for so much of my life where I felt like in order to be a good Muslim, other Muslims needed to recognize the Islam in me and like associate themselves with me. And then I went to college and I was like, oh, fuck this shit. This doesn't make any sense. Like, why are we going to a group meeting where girls have to sit like on a different side of the room, but like we have class together and we're gonna go get bubble tea after this. Like, what? What is? How does that make any sense? That kind of just triggered for me. I was like, this is just we're just trying to make our parents happy. This isn't about like creating a kind of way to communicate with God. Like that. That's what religion, I don't know, ought to be for me. But I see people just wanting to replicate how their parents lived their lives, and then. If they don't see that directly, they get pissed. And not pissed because they don't understand your connection to it. They just get pissed because they see you as 
representing them. And once you get into the whole representation thing, it's not about being real. It's about being a good PR rep. And that's the one thing that I think I wanted to shit on as like a journalist. I was like, yo, PR is not, it's not real. It's not, it's not journalism. It's like making a, an ad. I'm going back to like making ads for people. And, right. Which I don't is know. The worst. It's not fulfilling. Yeah. It's not fulfilling. I think that's so funny. It's a funny quote. <laughs> Wait, that quote that I just read? Yeah, it's That's funny. your quote. I know. It's, <laughs> it's like I'm laughing at myself. I'm like Eamon thinks he's punk rock he ain't shit dude you are fucking punk rock you're super punk the fact that you're wearing a button up shirt is punk rock <laughs> like you're like you're not wearing like a t-shirt you're wearing a button up shirt which is punk if only I took it to like the Kanye level and just wore like a make America great again hat too punk, punk rock too punk <laughs> too punk too punk um, yeah. I, I think also you know I, I do this to my mom a lot I pretty much um drive her nuts even as a 33 year old man like i've been doing this since i was a kid you know like yeah man when i was 11 i'd be like hey mom guess what i got my belly button pierced and what she'd be like no and I, <laughs> I didn't have it pierced you know or like i'd be like 18 and I'd be like, hey mom guess what i got a tattoo hey mom guess what <laughs> like whatever anything to just piss her off and, and that continues as i'm 33 like w- when we were in cairo i had this huge argument with my mom about hijab she just refused to hear my even questioning of it and the way that we disagree with each other right and i think this is isn't even unique to like the quran or the even the muslim american experience it's just like this this idea that we're a group and we're lumped together whether or not we like it whether or not we we want to be linked up together and by virtue of us having that same identity we have to agree and the way that people get defensive i think is informed by that. They want to feel like the way that they see things is correct and easy to understand. And all they have to do is convince you. But really, so like for me, my relationship with the sun is like all over the place. I had to come back to it because I, I felt like I didn't want to. It was like a protest, like a fuck you to the bigots who I felt like were always trying to like weaken my faith. So one of the ways that I coped with that was I would spend time reading the Quran, reading the verses that they sent me, trying to read it in context and try and have answers, like better answers for bigots who aren't going to change, right? It's like stupid, but that was my motivation. But then I had to figure out a way to reconcile the fact that people exist in this world who do see it as a commandment to cover your head specifically. And people who do see other verses, even if they're a little vague or even if they're very vague as being justifications for very specific ways to live your entire life and so that always kept me from being like a full-blown believer but there was i had this eureka moment where i was trying to like it it had nothing to do with the hijab it was something way less actually it was pretty high stakes it was the verse about men being in charge of women so i talked about this one particular verse with my mom and i was like mom what do you read when this? Like, do you feel like you have to just relinquish your rights to your husband? Because that's what this English translation says. And then she goes, oh, well, the word that's being used here in Arabic could be interpreted in this way, this way, this way. And she was rationalizing it for me. And she was like, look, I think it's more of a, like a maintainer thing. He has a responsibility towards me. And then that was like, I like what you just did. That makes sense to me. For any kind of text to be 
long lasting. Even if we're reading like fucking Paul Revere or reading the script of Pocahontas, if we're reading it now versus reading it in 1400 years, we're going to get different lessons from it. We're not going to be like, okay, well that we have to worry about indigenous folks because maybe there won't even be any left by that point or the indigenous people will be changed. So we're not going to be thinking to ourselves, okay, this is the lesson. There's going to be a different lesson. Oh, that word that they used, you know, hate, that could be interpreted a lot of ways, you know? So I think the way that we think about language is important here. And I think that that's really hard for so many hyphenated Americans to access. This like second language, maybe a language they don't understand as much, or they are relying on other people to interpret for them. But then that interpretation, by virtue of it being an interpretation, is going through their lived experience filter. And so for me as a Muslim person, you can't have that conversation about hijab without first having the conversation about communication and understanding and what the point of interpreting this verse is. Is it for your personal choice? Are you trying to get closer to God and you're reading this verse and you, you hear, okay, I need to hide my jewels. Does that mean I need to cover up my cleavage or cover my hair or cover this? If you're doing it for yourself, I'm sure you're going to get a very different interpretation of, of whether or not you're reading it because you just hate Muslims and are looking for something to justify it. Right. Or you've been taught by this by a particular imam when you were living in Egypt and now my son has questions about it. And I want him to understand it the way that that imam made me understand it. So I think all of this shit makes the Quran beautiful. Like I, right. love, I love reading it with that in mind. So to bring it back to another point, not to go on a crazy long rant. I have this friend who's like a, a scholar of the Arabic Quranic language. And so when I was talking about doing this podcast about masculinity, how I really enjoyed doing the video series about like Muslims in America, I kind of wanted to have a similar approach. I wanted to feel the same way. And uh, I was like, so what are some ways to think differently about masculinity without making it feel like I'm trying to have a referendum for everyone to think about it a particular way? And so he was like, oh, well, I have this book. It's like the earliest Arabic dictionary that's ever been printed. And this is from like the 16th century. Or something like that. Not like super old, but it's the oldest one that we have. And he was like, okay, let's look at the word for man, rajul. Okay, how is it translated here? Son. The freaking translation was a whole page. Wow. It wasn't like man, not a woman. It was like man, not a woman. Or a woman with manly features. Or a man with manly feet. Or uh, And it was just like kind of going on and on and on and on and on and on. And then it was like a man is... Someone who is a provider. A man is someone who, when they ride out to battle, will jump off of the horse to fight. Wow. Like, a man is all of these things. And it just kind of kept on going on and on and on. And uh, one of them that I thought was really interesting was a woman with manly features is considered a man. And I was like, that's... I feel like I understand the word better now. It's not just a definition trying to say, okay, a man is this. It's a man is all of these ideas simultaneously. And that... Also, even though that was recent, changed the way I've been reading the Quran. It's like, okay, this is like six centuries after the Quran was, I guess at this point, memorized, not written down, right? Those words, when you speak them to people, are going to pull all of these different emotions and, and, and definitions out of them. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it's okay for some people to be like, well, this is a mandatory scarf that I have to wear on my head. Or... This is not a thing that I, I got out of this, this verse. 
maybe both of those things can be true at the same time. You know? I think my favorite thing about what you do is that you learn while you're doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I think that's important. I think that's what makes your content and your output and your journalism so good is that I can see the eagerness to learn. And you're like, you essentially are an avatar for me. Right. Like it's like <laughs> it's like who's afraid of Ayman Ismail? I was like, I'm like, who's afraid who's of Kareem Rahman? Yeah. Like that's what I want to know. And you're doing the work and you're doing it not for us as a show or for entertainment, mm-hmm. but like because you're actually curious. And yeah, so I, I think I don't have the answers, man. I, I, well, you're giving them to us. And so so like, you know, listening to Man Up has been a great experience. Except I don't agree men don't do yoga because I'm in yoga and I'm always in there. And Yo. I see I see a couple other men in there. I noticed you did an episode that said why men don't do yoga. And yeah, wh- I didn't listen true. to it, but tell me why men don't do yoga. Uh, it was more like why amen doesn't do yoga. <laughs> Here we go. Amen. Because this is like a real thing. I, I mean, I like to pretend like I'm woke. You know what I mean? Like if somebody's like, hey, what's up? My name is this. I'm like, oh, what's your preferred pronoun? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm that loser. But when my friends ask me to go do yoga, I'm like, Psh, yoga. What, I'm gonna go pump iron. What are you talking about? Yoga? I don't need to stretch. <laughs> like, right? And I'm limber. I'm limber. I'm ready to go. But like that experience was so like shameful for me to even talk about because it's so recent. <laughs> like a few months ago, I was saying this. And so I was I, I was thinking to myself, like, why? I know men do yoga, but for some reason for me. I don't want to do yoga because it's a thing that I don't think men regularly do. And I, I like talked to one of my coworkers about it and he was like, um, I do yoga. I talked to another coworker and they were like, no, nah, I don't really do yoga. And then I was like, okay, this is, this might be worth <laughs> unpacking. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Cause I'm like talking to this guy who was like a yoga expert and he's like, yo dude, don't say that. Like, yeah, I did, I did it for the first time. I was like praying for a flash flood so that like, I could, like, I didn't want to go. Speaking of praying, when I do yoga, sometimes there are poses that remind me of actual praying. Dude, yeah. Man. And I was like, this is really weird. I told my mom about it. I was like, I was like, mom, I've been doing all this yoga and it's weird. Sometimes like a forward fold or something like that. I forgot, yep. I forgot what it's called, but it's like, or like even child's pose, yep. which is when your head's on the ground. I'm like, it's so much like the Muslim prayer that's kind of eerie when I do it like in the morning or something at like yeah. a seven o'clock. I almost feel like I'm praying. Gotta, it's really you weird. You gotta get your stretches, man. <laughs> the Prophet Muhammad was like, yo, you guys are looking a little stiff. Uh, is that true? <laughs> I don't know. It's an, it's an interpretation. It's an interpretation. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, how do you feel about wrapping this up? It's pretty cool. Uh, I could sit here for a long time talking yeah, to you. Man, man. We should chill out. I, like, I also like looking at your face. Um <laughs> So, uh, I guess that's all the time we have. I'm going to tell everyone to peace out. Yeah, shouts out to you for listening. This is cool. All right. Keep up with Ayman and visit his <laughs> website, Ayman.com. Make sure to also follow him on Instagram at Ayman, D-O-T-C-O-M. And listen to Man Up wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, and beyond. If you like the show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or whatever. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. 
This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the rest of the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Who's afraid of Iman Ismail? Sure as hell ain't me. <laughs> so long, New York City. Bye.